All right, everybody, we have a very special episode today because you know what? We've had a lot of folks come on who've been in the military and they've been fighter pilots, but who here has ever been sitting there watching the news or watching what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and has heard about the famous A-10 Warthog, an amazing airplane. And if you guys don't know about it, just go Google it right now. But I want to bring on Kim, call sign Casey Campbell, uh, for just an incredible conversation. Uh, Casey, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So, so guys, I got to tell you a little bit of background about Casey. Uh, first of all, retired Air Force colonel. So I know you guys are familiar with the the, uh, uh, the military. You know what that means. That means, okay, this, this woman is a serious leader. And man, she's been there, done that. Uh, 24 years in the Air Force. 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog. So just to put that in context, I had about 700 flight hours in the F-14. And during that entire period of time, I think I flew um, 22 combat missions. Casey, you have flown over 100 combat missions on the ground, protecting troops. Uh, think about those movies, folks, where you, you know, you're seeing the troops on the ground and they're in contact and they're in extremis. And and they're calling in the, the the airplanes overhead to come in and basically save their lives, right? To completely change the mission. That is, uh, we did very little of that in the flying that I did. That is, Casey, that is what you did every day, right? That is absolutely what we did every day. Was Our primary mission was to support the troops on the ground and help them get home safely. Oh, man, like mad respect. And, and folks, I'll, I'll never forget the first time uh, we were going to do what's called close air support. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm about to go launch, I'm like, man, am I ready for this? Like, man, maybe maybe my airplane will go down. Because in that environment, every single decision you make, um, your wingman makes, your, your team makes, the communication on the ground, literally every decision is a life and death decision. That is not hyperbole because of the proximity you are between the good guys and the bad guys and what you're doing. And you've been in Iraq. You've been in Afghanistan. Uh, you did something, uh, because I know what it takes to get this, absolutely uh, just over the top, awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism. And this is after you recovered, uh, you're, you're, you had an airplane that was badly battle damaged. You got shot up. You had this intense close air mission in Baghdad. We're going to be talking about this a little bit. But through this and your career, what you're doing now, you wrote this incredible book, called Flying in the Face of Fear, Fighter Pilots Lessons on Leading with Courage. And uh, we're going to be digging in to a lot of things today, folks. A, around mindset, some things that Casey learned that I know we can apply today right now. Um, and Casey, if it's okay with you, I'd also love to have you share some things about just as a woman in kind of a man's world, so to speak, if that's fair, yeah. but but excelling. And there's so many lessons I think you can share to not only the the women who are listening, but also the men who are either working with, leading, or working for a woman in business. Because man, there are so many powerful synergies there. If maybe we approach some things differently, but also then you also have done just a great job because I love it, right? This wingman culture. I always talk about you have to have a wingman. But how do you be that in that culture that we had in the fighter squadron is something that was really special, really unique. And in my entire business career, it was always one of my goals to strive to replicate that culture we have in a squadron, in a business, because 
even if you don't like the person next to you, you know what? You develop a trust. You have respect. You know, maybe it's not the person you go have a beer with. Maybe it's the person you can't wait to have a beer with. But you figure out how to put aside your differences because of the mission is so important. So how do you create a culture that does that? Now, with that said, uh, Casey, I'd love for you to bring us back, though, and tell us a little bit about your whole journey as a as a young woman in high school and college. And like, how did you even end up being a A-10 fighter pilot? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that that was the path that I was going to take when I was very young. But my journey actually started when I was 10 years old. Um, in fifth grade, in 1986, I watched the space shuttle Challenger launch. And there was something about that, you know, in the initial launch, obviously, there was the excitement, the thrill of flight, you know, we were just ex so excited to watch it. And then to see the tragedy really unfold in front of us, I think, for whatever reason, at 10 years old, I really connected with that moment in terms of understanding that the astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was big and important, more important than themselves, you know, so much so that they were willing to risk their life for it. And there was something in that moment that just really connected with me. And I didn't totally get it at the time. And, I, you know, having some conversations with my parents um, but I realized that that was something that I wanted in my life. And I very quickly decided at, at 10 years old that I was um, ideally going to go on to become an astronaut someday. Um, but talking with my dad, I asked, how do I get to be an astronaut? And he said, well, a lot of those astronauts are pilots. They, a lot of them have gone to the Air Force Academy. Uh, that was his background as well. Uh, and so you might consider that. And I, I think my dad my poor dad probably had no idea that this was something his little girl was going to pursue for real. Like, I think he thought it was maybe this fleeting idea, but that was it for me. It was like a, a switch flipped and I was, that was my path. That was what I was going to do. And I totally committed myself to it, even at 10 years old. <laughs> okay. And now, so I'm guessing you were probably laser focused in high school on the Air Force Academy, correct? Yeah. I mean, once I made that decision, I mean, it was all, I was all in, I mean, I, all throughout high school, I worked really hard at school. I really tried to up my grades. I um, took the SAT multiple times to prep courses. I played sports. I did extracurricular activities, like everything that you could do that, you know, in terms of what the academies tell you to do to be competitive. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't quite enough. And I actually got a rejection letter from the Air Force Academy my senior year of high school, which was completely devastating because I bet I had, that's all I that's all I wanted, right? That was all I had worked for. So thankfully I had a really great support network, right? At the time I had wingmen. I didn't know it. I didn't call them that then, but I had mentors and parents and teachers and friends who supported me and really encouraged me to keep after it. Um, and I, you know, I think that was really a defining moment for me, right? I could have quit and done something else after that initial rejection. Um, but instead I decided I was writing the Air Force Academy every week, a letter handwritten letter, because that's what we did back then, um, that I was interested, you know, something that I had done to improve. And that if somebody else decided they weren't going to go to the academy, that I would happily take their spot. And sure enough, about two weeks before basic training started, I got my acceptance letter to the Air Force Academy. So what a great lesson there, though, right? You know, yeah. like in scripture, it says, you know, keep knocking on the door, right? Keep knocking, yeah. keep knocking. And you were not going to be denied. Yeah. And I'm guessing that if that hadn't happened, you would have found another path through ROTC or something else or another program because you just, you have, you know, there is a lot of power in having a, 
you know, being really connected to a purpose, that singleness of purpose, that big idea that drives us. And something for all of us to consider is what is that one thing that we're willing to just keep knocking on the door, keep sending letters because, uh, you know, just even a thought too, some of the most amazing mentors I've had in my life, I've just reached out over and over and over. And, you know, it led to a conversation, led to a relationship, led to transformational influences in my life, but sometimes you just yeah. gotta be persistent. But I know the system, even getting through the Air Force Academy, getting a pilot slot and getting even into a fighter cockpit, what people don't realize is it's a very small percentage of what the Air Force flies um, is even considered a fighter. So how did you navigate that as this thing even just kept getting narrower and narrower, especially maybe as a, uh, you know, when you were going through uh, women in, um, these seats were probably fair, even rare, a lot more rare than they were today. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I guess the goodness of that rejection letter was that once I got to the Academy, I almost was like, well, I'm going to prove to them that I belong here. Not just that I belong, but I'm going to excel. Like it wasn't just about survival at the Academy for me. It was about excelling. Uh, and I worked very hard at the Academy and I graduated at the top of my class, which then allowed me to pick um, the career field that I wanted. So for me, that was going to pilot training. Uh, there were about 16% women at the Air Force Academy at the time. So right away, I'm in this very male-dominated environment. But I learned very quickly that I needed to be credible. I mean, I, I went into the Academy very physically fit. And I think once you prove that credibility and capability, like the rest just doesn't matter. And that carried with me onto pilot training at pilot training at the time, I think there were something like 33 female fighter pilots in the entire Air Force at the time out of more than like 3,500. So we were less than 1% at the time. And again, I knew I had to prove myself at pilot training. I knew I wanted that fighter and um, it wasn't necessarily easy. I actually struggled with air sickness my first probably three weeks of pilot training. I questioned a lot, like, was this really something that I should keep after that I should do. And I realized like in my heart, right, it was still this purpose and passion. And even though it was a struggle, even though quite honestly, it was pretty miserable at times, I decided that I was going to keep after it and thankfully did well enough, um, you know, despite the air sickness, did well enough to get into the fighter program, uh, get the T-38, which is the fighter track, uh, and then did well enough there where I could uh, fill out my dream sheet and uh, select the A-10, which was uh, the airplane that I wanted to fly because of that mission that we talked about at the beginning of close air support and supporting our troops on the ground. Okay, now that, it is a crazy mission, man. It is dynamic, it is high G, you are constantly under threat. Everything you do in that environment, right? You're constantly, you know, you are the lifeline, right? You, you know, talk yeah. about phone a friend, like this is the friend that's coming in with a, a 30 millimeter cannon to uh, to save your life. So w what was it about that that so appealed to you? I, you know, I think it was, you know, as I talked to other pilots about what they did, you know, I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I didn't really know what I wanted to fly. And I realized one in the training portion, uh, the formation flights, while they were kind of cool, it didn't really resonate with me. I really enjoyed the low level flights. Those were a lot of fun. But I just connected with this idea of supporting our troops on the ground, like that I could make a difference in their lives, that I could help them get home safely to their families. And keep in mind, this is pre 9-11. So there wasn't this big ground war support to ground forces. I mean, at the time, honestly, you know, the 
the A-10 was like kind of on the back burner. I mean, the Air Force was talking about getting rid of it. But for me, it was this idea of this mission that I really connected with. And I decided that was what I wanted to do. I mean, I just, I thought if I can make a difference and an impact for one family, for one person, that matters. Yeah, and, and to put this in context, and I'd love your your take on this. If you, Anybody out there who's watched Top Gun Maverick, now I love the movie. <laughs> I won't even tell you guys how many times I've watched the movie. I was a low altitudes tactics instructor. So a lot of the flying that they did in that movie, we actually do. But I want to tell you this right now. This is my understanding. Now, the A-10 community takes what you saw in that movie and they do it better. They do it in more extreme conditions and it's where they live. It's That's where you guys operate at a, a, a significant portion of the time. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's what we train to do. And I, I really think, you know, when we talk about close air support expertise, the reason we're comfortable with it, the, we, the reason that we feel like we can say we're good at it and feel confident in it because it is our bread and butter. It is what we train for every mission. I mean, we might occasionally go out and do an air-to-air mission just to make sure we have those skills, but this is what we do. This is what we train for. We train down at 100 feet um, above the ground at low altitude to be able to get in ingress behind the terrain, just like you see in Top Gun. We're not going quite as fast, um, but we that's what we train to do, to be able to go in and protect friendly forces. Um, what, what's just, the purpose in like in a active combat area, urban area of coming in so low versus coming in from really yeah. high, like, you know, kind of how we well, were, when we, we, were doing we come in low, we can hide um, behind mm-hmm. terrain. We can hide in ground clutter so that we're not detected by enemy threats, both in the air and also on the ground. So now, we when you say ground low, flood, you're talking about, you're also, you're trying to defeat enemy radar systems, right? Yes, we're trying mm-hmm. to get below the enemy radar. Again, just kind of a, what you saw in Top Gun. We're hiding below the radars so they don't see us. We can also hide from enemy aircraft that maybe don't have the best radars but because they're we're in ground clutter. You know, they're looking down, they can't see us. There's a lot of things on the ground. Um, but it is very high threat to be that low. I mean, it is. there's not much room for error when you are that low. And so we don't necessarily like to operate there. It's not our primary choice. But if, if it is high threat, um, then we will get down low to evade enemy radar systems. Now, flying in that environment, right? Uh, I'm just thinking of the ability to make decisions, to observe you know, rapidly right? Orient yourself to the train, the mission, right? Make a decision, take action, and then repeat that. In the military, we call that the OODA loop. There are some people that really excel at that process. What did you, you know, as you were more and more working in this environment, what did you learn about yourself as you went through that, that you've also brought into, you know, what you're doing today? I think, you know, it's a stepping stone. It's, you know, you're, you're constantly learning along the way. I mean, you start as a wingman and you're just hanging on, right? You want to be in position. You want to be on the radios. You're just, you're trying to hang on. And then as you get more comfortable with it, the more you do it, you can, now you're in a leadership position where you actually, you're like, okay, I can actually now make the decisions, make, you know, be flexible because a lot of the times we go into these scenarios and we don't really know what it's going to be like. It is completely unknown. We know potentially a radio frequency, a name of the controller on the ground, maybe a little bit about the scenario, but a lot of times it's this unknown environment. And so what we've realized over time is this idea, the more we prepare, the more we practice, the more we plan for contingencies and those things that could go wrong, the more equipped we're to, for us to handle that unknown, to face the uncertainty. And I think that 
that applies to anything in life. I mean, the fact that we, we have to go into some unknown environments, whether it's a negotiation, a briefing, a presentation, you name it, the more we put in the work in advance, the more comfortable we are because we're more competent, we're more capable. And so it give us, gives us that confidence to face the unknown, to go into those uncertain scenarios. And that is very much what we did as pilots. Uh, we would be launched on an alert mission and have, you know, we're pulling maps out, trying to figure out where we're going and what we're doing. This is back in the early days before we had this nice, cool uh, moving map display, but we had paper maps that we would put in the front of our cockpit, really just trying to build a picture en route to the target area um, and then make the best decisions we can. Sometimes, like you said, life and death decisions, uh, split second decisions, but it's all based on all the work we did previous to the mission that we put in the work to be ready for it. And I think that's why when you're getting shot at or friendly troops are screaming on the ground for support, you have to be able to maintain that calm and composed nature and be able to make quick decisions. And, you know, that is something that we are very passionate about to be able to be able to do that, to make those quick decisions, remain calm and composed under pressure to make the, the right decision in the moment. Yeah. So you're in a place, you know, you do all the training and training can only prepare you so much. We always had a motto. I'm sure you have the same motto, right? Train like you fight and fight like you train, because we have to make what we do. Like, even if you're briefing for a meeting with a huge prospect, right? You you need to be, like be in the moment and role play like you're sitting there with somebody like what could come up. But now this is higher stakes. So when you're in this place of extreme stress, your life's at risk. People at ground uh, on the ground, their life's at risk. How would you describe the mindset that was part of the culture and that you also had to create yourself? Well, I think a lot of it, it's this idea that you're always working to excel, this idea of continuous improvement. And that only happens if you have that growth mindset, if you're willing to try new things, if you're willing to push yourself outside your comfort zone knowing that you might make mistakes or fail. You know, ideally we do that in the training environment. We do that in our practice. We do that in our visualization. We do that in our team huddles and our walkthroughs so that when it really counts, we can perform. But you have to have that mindset and that trust in an organization to be able to do that. For us, we realized that if we were gonna perform at that very high level, that we needed to push each other, support each other, have that environment of trust. And then every time we went out on a mission, we would come back in and we would talk about our flight. We would talk about the mission that we just flew. We would talk about our objectives. Did we meet them? We would also talk about the things maybe we didn't do so well. And we would really drill down into the root cause of any mistakes that we made. We would continue to ask that question, why? Why did it happen? Because sometimes we get stuck in this very easy answer of blame the person, blame something that's kind of the easy button. But if we really drill down into that root cause, then we can pull out the lessons learned and then we do it differently on the next mission. But if you're going to do that, you have to have this environment of trust where we support each other, we encourage each other. There's no blame, there's no shame. It's just how do we get better? And if we each work on getting better individually, then it raises the performance of the team. So it's this whole idea of this growth mindset, this fighter pilot mindset of really pushing yourself to excel. Uh, and that doesn't happen unless you continue to, you know, constantly work to get better by learning from things that maybe didn't go so well. So a couple of things you said there that I, I think are some just huge takeaways for all of us. First thing is the brief and the debrief. And as I come in and I work with teams, coach with teams, 
this is something that people forget all the time. And it is such a missed opportunity. You know, Casey, if you and I were, let's just say you and I were going to do a training together at Peterson Air Force Base, or we were going on a sales call for a technology company. I know because of our backgrounds, we would sit down and we would, we would go through, okay, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Uh, why are we there? How does it add value to them? What are the personalities of the people in the room? What are our roles in the meeting? We're going to talk about this so we're prepared, but then we're going to do the meeting. But how you continuously improve and how you get better, and this is where it gets missed, is the debrief. We need to come back. Uh, actually, we just did this with the team, and we did all our prep work, and you know, it, it just felt flat, to be honest with you guys. And afterwards, I was debriefing with two members of my team. We did it as soon as the call was over. And they gave me some feedback. They said, John, here's a couple of things you're doing. And sometimes it's hard to hear, right? You got to check your ego at the door and something like this. But you know what? I trusted these two men. I knew they were giving me this feedback because we were constantly seeking to get better. But I would love some of your thoughts, Casey, though, on how important that the, the debrief is, whether it's in the military or a sales meeting or or anything in leadership. Yeah, well, personally, I've used this this idea of the fighter pilot debrief in my personal life, and I've used it in my professional life as well. I mean, my husband and I can debrief tough conversations that we've had with our teenager, right? How did it go? Maybe it didn't go so well. What tactics, what are we going to try next time? You know, and it is hard in a debrief because there is a little bit of you know, you check your ego at the door. We also check our rank at the door. So, you know, lower members of an organization can provide feedback to more senior, more experienced members. And I think that so you're saying the captain important. on the team, who's the O3, who's maybe been there six years, they can call you out as the colonel in that environment. Yes, and absolutely. We were, we were the same way. And it has to be that way, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely has to be that way. And, you know, some of the best ideas, the most creative ideas can come from the lower levels of an organization. Sometimes they're closest to the problem. But if you don't create that environment where they feel safe to bring those ideas to the table, you know, you're never going to hear those ideas. So to me, it's critically important, this idea of the debrief. And I think some people get a little like they're worried that we don't have the time to do this. You know, it's just it's not worth the effort. It is. It's 100% worth the effort, even if it's a quick team huddle after something. But if you can really take the time to debrief, learn those lessons, and then do it differently. Because the other thing I find in some of the coaching that, that I have done is that teams will do the debrief. They'll write down lessons learned. Maybe it's a conference that they're having. And then next year, as the conference comes forward, they forget to pull out the lessons that they learned. So they don't, they're kind of repeating the same mistakes. So it's not just learning the lessons. You now have to take them and do something with them the next time. Critically important. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but it really takes a leader to step in and say, this is a priority. We are going to do this. This is worth the time and effort. Yeah. And I'll make a bold statement. I do not personally believe you can improve your people won't get better. They won't be more effective unless you do the debrief because it's all fresh and I can give you feedback and that's where the learning happens. And if you're not doing it, you know, I've heard people say that too. I don't have the time. Well, guess what, buddy? Uh, you don't have the time not to. If you truly want your organization, your team, your company succeed, it, this is an essential. But you also mentioned something else about a growth mindset in a, in a book that I recommend to all my clients. It's called A Growth Mindset uh, by Carol Dweck. Yep. Phenomenal. But yes, it reached out, like even one of the things in there, right? Let's, you know, failure, right? Like here's a fixed mindset. 
I don't want to maybe try that or lead the meeting because I might fail. And then I might be embarrassed in front of my team. So that is, that's not only a fixed mindset, but that's probably a very low trust team. A growth mindset would be, you know what? I'm not very good at leading a, a, a meeting like this, or I've never really done it before. But the only way to get better is to put myself in that situation so I can learn, get feedback, and then maybe be a little incrementally better next time. So what you're talking about is a shift. And that shift from a, and a lot of us are just, there's a lot of elements of fixed mindset. If you guys have read the book, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I would encourage you to read the book. And one of the things that we do in our debriefs, Casey, we do something called IDS. If there was a problem, we're going to identify it. So we start with the root cause. We don't get into conversations. We don't get into discussion until I've identified, hey, why, why did John not show up prepared? Right. Or, hey, in our prep for this meeting, we all agreed on this strategy. That was the root cause. We actually made a not the best decision all the way back there. And now we saw how it showed up in the meeting. Then we'll have a discussion on what we do better and what we do next time. But then we solve it. What are the action steps? Hey, I might have to take some accountability. I have to go work on some stuff. I might have to show up for the next briefing and do something different. But in that, what we've done is we've actually been able to constantly come at it, Casey, from this approach is looking at it. Uh, and this is uh, how we try to infuse growth mindset into our company meetings is, hey, hey what do we do well? Maybe the customer hated us, didn't go. I mean, it was terrible. They walked us out the door. But was there anything in that whole process we did well? Well, guess what? We briefed, but we got it wrong. The meeting went terribly. We debriefed and we're figuring it out. The other thing is, what did we learn from that so that we can improve? And when we focus on asking ourselves the questions in that way, it tends to help us constantly, you know, be moving toward that growth mindset. And I'd love some thoughts on some things you've done with teams to maybe help them shift if they're not doing that to actually starting to bring this into how they're operating. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Because from an ego perspective, like I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to fail. I mean, I, you know, I've been there, right? I, I have put that pressure on myself, but I've also realized if I don't try it, if I don't push myself, then I'm not going to get better. And I really do think leadership plays a huge role, not just at the top, but all levels of an organization in a debrief. Can they stand up and say, Hey, I made this mistake. I could have done it better. And so I think that's really the starting point because then people feel like, all right, we're in a safe space where I could admit that I made a mistake or maybe I saw something that wasn't done as well as it could. Um, so I, I really think that example starts with the leadership at all levels to be able to feel comfortable in this environment, to help their team feel comfortable. But I absolutely agree with you. You know, start with, let's talk about what we did well. Let's, let's highlight the people on the team that did well because you wanna repeat those things. Uh, you don't want to just go in and feel bad about all the things that went wrong. I think it is important to talk about what do we do well? What are we going to do better the next time? And give people recognition for that. And then when we talk about those mistakes, we're not blaming an individual. We're talking about as a team, how are we going to do it better the next time? So it's really important how you set this debrief up. It's really important to have that environment of trust. And so even if we we take a step back, you know, how do you build a growth mindset? Well, first, you have to have that environment of trust where people feel safe, it's a psychologically safe space, where you have the common belief that as a team, we help each other, we encourage each other, we lift the performance of the team by lifting individuals and lifting others. Well, I love that. Now, I want to put all this together 
and bring you back a few years to 2002, 2003, and you had a flight that was a pretty transformative moment in your life. And I'd love for you, it's an incredible story. I'd love for you to share what happened that day. Yeah. You know, this day was pretty much like every other day on a deployment for Operation Iraqi Freedom because our mission was to support the troops on the ground. And so we took off on a very standard mission, which was for us was take off from Kuwait, fly an hour up to Baghdad. We would air refuel, so get gas while airborne. And then we would just wait in these stacks. So they had stacks of aircraft just stacked up around Baghdad. And then we would just wait. We would wait for the call, wait for someone on the ground to make a call that they needed assistance. Um, we had been there about maybe five minutes and we got a call for close air support, troops in contact. Our troops on the ground were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance. Uh, so we start gathering all the information. The real critical point was that we we couldn't actually see the ground below. So this day, the clouds were over Baghdad, covering Baghdad. And for us, we have to be able to get below the weather. Uh, so we're trying to build this picture while we're above the clouds. Uh, our friendly troops, they're hunkered down, awaiting resupply. The enemy is over on the east side of the Tigris River, and they're firing rocket-propelled grenades into our troops. Uh, they give us a target, which is underneath a bridge where the enemy is hiding, um, and then coming out to shoot rocket-propelled grenades at our troops. So we're building this picture. We're putting everything on our maps, um, and then we just can proceed you, right over. Can you target and shoot under a bridge? Can you come in at an angle, or you don't know yet until you get there? Uh, we know we can do it, but you're right. It is forward firing. It has to be low altitude, low angle to get underneath the bridge. My goodness. Okay. Keep yeah. So this wow. is the picture we're trying to build. Bad respect, Casey. Just saying. <laughs> we're trying to build this picture of what we're going to do, and um, we're we're right over the target area. You know, which in some ways is good, hoping kind of will surprise the enemy because of the clouds, but also not so good because we can't see the ground below. We can't see this picture. And uh, my flight lead says wedge shooters guns, which is our tactic. So we're going to be in a wedge formation. Essentially, I'm about a mile from him, just following him in. And we're both going to use our forward firing gun. And then he just says, I find he found a hole in the clouds. I watch him. He rolls inverted and he dives down below the weather and he's gone. And he says, all right, Casey, it's your turn. And I looked down, found the hole in the clouds and, and dove through. I think as soon as I popped out down below the weather, it was it was very surreal because, you know, it's things are moving fast, but there's a second of like, I can see the firefight happening. We are so low. I can see this firefight. I can see tracers and smoke. And it's everything that we train for. It is everything that we plan for. About that time, I start to see these puffs of gray and white smoke and then a bright flash next to my cockpit. And I realize, you know, that it's not just a firefight happening across the river, but now the enemy sees us and they're shooting up at us too. Um, but still, we have a mission to do. We acknowledge it. We talk about it. We keep our jet moving and we roll in very quickly. So now in that, uh, I'm curious. So when you're getting flat yeah. like that from the ground, do you just try to put it out of your mind and just hope the odds are in your favor and just focus on on the mission and, and yeah. navigating and aviating? Or, or how does that affect you in that moment? It's a little bit of both, right? Because now it's like, okay, if I wasn't doing a good job of keeping my jet moving before, and we just try to keep our jet moving uh, so that it's harder for them to target us. Well, now I'm really going to keep it moving. Um, so it's not like so you're jinking and jiving all over yeah. the place. So you're not, you're not predictable. You're not in a straight line. So now that's actually probably adding a level of difficulty as yeah. you're also trying to get into a firing position. Yeah, now you're trying to line up to get right underneath that angle to get underneath the bridge. But at the same time, I'm yanking and banking and maneuvering around trying to 
make sure that I don't get hit in the process. And uh, we decide based on the high threat scenario, um, we're going to try to do two passes, alleviate some of the pressure off our friendly troops, and then we'll climb up, kind of reassess, get our energy back and figure out what we need to do next. Um, so my we do the two passes. I'm coming off target on my last pass, which was rockets. And I just feel and hear a loud explosion at the back of the airplane. There is no doubt in my mind. I know immediately that I'm hit. It feels a bit like getting rear-ended in a high-speed car crash because the airplane noses over. Uh, it throws me forward in the cockpit. You know, I'm looking down at Baghdad below, and just instinctively, I pull back on the control stick, and nothing, like nothing, happens. Uh, and now I'm like, you know, I can see Baghdad getting closer, and I know I might have to eject. It's this moment of like, am I going to crash? Do I need to eject? I remember looking down at my ejection handles and thinking like. Not yet. This is about the last thing I want to do is eject potentially into the hands of the enemy. I go back to my training. I try to maintain aircraft control. I can't. I analyze the situation. I've got a master caution light flashing at me. I've got this caution panel that is now just completely lit up. There are lights everywhere. I look up at the hydraulic gauges and they're at zero. And hydraulics are what allow us to control the airplane. So at this point, I know I've got two options. I can either eject or I can attempt to get the aircraft in our emergency backup system, which is just a switch. Um, and I flip the switch and I'm just hoping it works because I have no idea what the damage is to the airplane. Uh, and thankfully the airplane- Have you ever used that system in the past? Time. We only use it once during our initial training in the A-10, uh, just to get a feel for how the airplane will respond. But it is, uh, it's like cranks, cables, and pulleys that allow you to fly the aircraft without hydraulics. So you've done uh, this once in training yes. years and years and years ago, and you're like, okay, like hope and a prayer, flip the switch, see what happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a possibility it doesn't work because I don't know. I mean, maybe the shrapnel hit another wire. I, I don't really know. So I, it's kind of my last hope is that switch. And it thankfully works. And I start climbing away from Baghdad. And that's kind of the first moment where I'm like, all right, <laughs> I might actually survive this. We're, and how about your engines? Were they... You know, at the time, um, I didn't think anything was wrong with the engines. Um, they were fine. I had no indications of an engine problem. Once we got out of kind of that immediate area of Baghdad, above the weather, kind of away from this high threat situation, my flight lead had pulled up next to me to do a battle damage check, just to look over of the airplane. And he said, um, he kept asking me about my engines. And I was like, I'm fine. Like, my, I've got a hydraulics problem, not an engine problem. Well, what I realize is, you know, he's trying to ask me things while not, I think probably trying to like keep me calm also, but he doesn't want to freak you out. He's seeing, yeah, he doesn't want to freak me out. Right. He's but seeing what your airplane to, looks like. And he's, he, uh, he's, he's, he's just he's trying, trying to like keep me calm and like only tell me the things that I need to know. Uh, but there is a significant amount of shrapnel damage to the engine, uh, the right engine, but it kept working. It kept flying, you know, and that, Again, true testament to the durability of the airplane. But uh, yeah, he told me there's a football size hole in the back horizontal stabilizer, which is the tail section of the airplane. And then he said there's hundreds of holes in the fuselage and tail, which was the shrapnel. So the, when the missile impacted the tail, it just sent shrapnel all throughout the airplane. And now, okay, so you're climbing away. And how far do you know in your head you have to probably go to get to a, uh, a safe place? I'm guessing 
ejecting in the middle of the desert is also not a very appealing option because yeah but it's better than ejecting over downtown baghdad so i feel like if i can just get out of baghdad city center there's a chance right that i would have a better well better chance of survival rescue if i was outside the city so that's my initial like okay just get there and then it's like okay now we've got out of the city take a deep breath start assessing where we're going to go and we um at the time we had had a base in Iraq. We had moved forward enough that we had control of a base in Iraq, but it only had one fire truck and there was no hospital. I mean, it was just a very minimal base. And we decided to bypass that base and go all the way back to Kuwait, which was our home base, which crash recovery, ambulance, fire truck, hospital, you name it. So that if I crashed, there was, I would have a better chance of survival. I mean, that's things we were talking about. Wow. That's, that's the conversations we were having. Yeah, because if you land at the forward operating base and you do have a accident because everything might just go upside down yeah um there's right the chances of you surviving medically are probably slim so you're like oh i have to take the chance yeah are you also and thinking I- you know what if this if, what if this thing catches on fire or blows up but that that would be going through my head yeah, well, it did catch on fire at some point because the whole backside of the jet was covered with hydraulic fluid dripping out. I mean, the aircraft was black on the backside and soft to the touch. My guess is that happened in the initial explosion. Um, but, you know, thankfully, right, it's this whole idea of a wingman. I had a wingman right there. He was tucked in right next to me watching the whole thing. And, you know, he would have been able to see it very quickly. But, um, yeah, you know, it's it's easy to think about all the worst case scenarios. And if I'm honest, I did, right? I I thought like, I could potentially die. I could not survive this. I could crash. I mean, you think about all the worst case scenarios and then you realize you can't stay there. You know, you can't stay Mm. in that moment. You just tuck it away, deal with it later. But I've got to really focus on flying the airplane and focus on the task at hand. And how long was the flight back to Kuwait? An hour. (laughs) So (laughs) a long time to think about the fact that you must have been like the longest hour of your life. It absolutely was. That is how I describe it. Because for me, you know, an hour, yeah, I tried to keep busy with the emergency checklist and going through things, but at some point, like it gets quiet and it's like, and then your mind starts wandering and you think about the the bad things. And, you know, my flight lead, my wingman there with me tried so hard to just really keep me focused. Well, let's go through this emergency checklist. And every now and then he would be like, all right, Casey, how are you doing? You know, and just like, you know, just being there for me, which was really nice. I mean, re- really reassuring to have him by my side during all of that. Now, um, when you got back to the airfield, I'm sure you did a, a straight in approach. Uh, did your gear landing gear come down? It did um, oh, through an emergency boy, backup thankful, procedure. Right? Oh my yeah, word. So, well, and once we got into the friendly in friendly territory, we did a controllability check. So we did, you know, we got the gear down, made sure that everything was good everything was backup emergency procedures because all of this stuff normally happens with hydraulics. So finally able to do that controllability check, fly in straight in approach, and then, you know, getting that airplane on the ground. Relief is not the right word. It was such an intense feeling of just relief of like, thank God I made it, you know, I'm on the ground. Like I survived and it was just a, I, I still to this day, I really struggle with the right word to explain that feeling of being back on the ground and knowing that I had survived. Wow. So, so that moment that, you know, I mean, this experience as you reflect back on it, right. And this place of both moving forward, you know, with 
a level of you know bravery while being afraid right that's like the yeah. definition of courage right moving yeah. forward while you're afraid it's not like that you are super woman and you like no i just put the fear in a box like no but <laughs> right it's but how would you describe that combination of what was happening there in some of these critical decision-making moments that you had? Yeah. Well, I think it's being afraid and doing it anyway. I mean, it is knowing that you are scared or worried or stressed about something. And I was all of the above. I mean, it was that, but having the courage to just step up and take action, like to do it anyway, it's, um, I wish I could have tucked it away. And I, and I tried, you know, I tried not to think about those worst case scenarios, but you know, listening back to the audio tape, I can hear the fear in my voice. I mean, I can tell that I'm afraid. I can tell that I'm scared. But again, for me in that moment, it's a single seat fighter. Like nobody else is going to do it for me. I've got to be able to do this. And, um, you know, it was just, I, and I realized kind of looking back, like this is life. We all face fear. We face challenges. It makes us feel stressed. It causes us to worry, you know, and sometimes we're afraid to act. And it is all about stepping up in those moments. It is about being scared and doing it anyway. You know, it's this idea that you actually can't have courage without some fear. And so step up and take action, acknowledge it, make sure you have a plan to deal with it, but then step up and take action. Yes. And, you know, you talk about being a single seat fighter, but you also had that wingman there. Yeah. You know, and all of us, whether it's, uh, a difficult relationship or your teenagers or a situation at work or um, like, you know, we're in a, a hard economy right now. You make a decision that might make or break your company or you might have to let people go. We're all, you know, you know, what is, you know, for everybody listening, like what is that hour alone battling um, a fighter, a wounded fighter for you personally? Yeah. What is that that maybe you're in right now? Because you know what, just like you, we don't get to hit pause. We don't get to take a training time out, but we have to move. We got to find a way to move through it. And I love the things you talked about, right? Your mindset, your training, your preparation, but having a a wingman, somebody there to talk to who gets it, who, right. And they might not be able to tell you what to do. Your guy could probably like, well, yeah, we could eject, we could land, right. You're just processing through. Yeah decisions as you had to keep making them. But he, and he had my back through it all, right? He, Mm -hmm. he provided me that mutual support. He, we talked through the pros and cons. We thought about the consequences. I understood the risk involved. We had those tough conversations, even though I know the decision came down to me, knowing that he had my back, he was there to provide support. You know, when the, when your adrenaline is pumping, you're feeling overwhelmed to have that wingman to just have your back to help you see the bigger picture, to give you some alternative ideas or thoughts. I think that is so important, not just over Baghdad, but in life as well. Wow. So awesome. Uh, Casey, how do people get in touch with you, find your book, uh, hear more about what you're doing? You do incredible speaking. Uh, I've seen you speak. You are just anybody that's looking for somebody to come into their organization and just, man, light them up in a good way. Couldn't recommend you more, Casey, but how do people find you? Thank you. Yeah, I think the best way, easiest way is uh, through my website, which is kim-kc-campbell.com. And there's links to all my social media there. You can email me from the website as well. Um, The book is also available through the website. It's also available Amazon, Barnes and Noble and anywhere, any of your favorite local booksellers as well. So 
It is really exciting. And I think, you know, the one thing I would say is I, I really appreciate all the people that have connected with me and reached out to me. And so if there's something that we haven't covered today, I'd love for, for you to reach out and just connect with me and ask that question. That is awesome. So before we land today, Casey, <laughs> any final thoughts to leave with everybody? Yeah, I think it's really just this idea of sometimes, you know, we face fear in our lives and it is not just about flying a fighter jet in combat. It's not just about life or death scenarios. These are like everyday things. These are having hard conversations with our kids, our spouse. It's having to make a difficult decision at work or a tough negotiation or really critical presentation. You know, there's fear in all of those things and it is okay to feel that fear. It is okay to feel anxious or nervous in the moment. But sometimes when we feel that way, we take a different approach, right? We decide not to act. We freeze or we resist change. We decide not to have the tough conversation. And, you know, when that happens, we lose the opportunity to improve. You know, we, our team can fail to excel in this very competitive environment. And so it's, it's so important to just, even if you're afraid, step up and take action, do the hard things, embrace the fear and lead with courage. Step up, take action, embrace the fear, uh, lead with courage. Love that. Uh, Casey, you are, you're awesome. I'm looking forward to our next conversation and keep knocking Absolutely. them live out there. And uh, thank you for your time today, man. That, that was, I'm so glad you're here and alive. And uh, man, thank the Lord for that. And uh, Absolutely. thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care.